I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. Once again, as always, I am Mr. Jamie Trecker, and I am joined today by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. Mr. Michael Sack may be joining us. He may not be. Ironically, since today's subject is children's television, he is actually down with his daughter, Rosalie. And if he joins us, we'll see him in a little bit. But today, as I mentioned, we are talking about children's television, and we're going to be speaking with the author, David Camp. He has a new book out from Simon & Schuster called Sunny Days. He joins us from Litchfield County in Connecticut. David, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Nice to be with you. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time out to talk to us. A really interesting book, David. Uh, and in fact, I wanted to kind of start off with uh, you and I are about the same age, and we were in that first cohort of kids that saw Sesame Street and kind of grew up with Mr. Rogers. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the genesis of that. Your book goes deep into the history of children's television, really predating Captain Kangaroo, Mr. Rogers, all the way through Zoom and the Electric Company, and all these shows that I think are going to be familiar to kids in the 1970s and 1980s. But for some of our listeners who are not familiar with the names I've just spewed out, could you talk a little bit about what it was like in you know 1969, 1970, when things like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers first started appearing on the air, because it was a sea change in children's programming. Right. Children's programming to that point had kind of gone in one direction or another. One direction was kind of very stiff educational programming from well-intentioned public TV stations that were basically trying to turn teachers into TV personalities um, but it was just kind of boring and, and, uh, and inert. And the other thing was kind of that baby boomer howdy doody kind of thing where it was very commercialized and, in, in my opinion, kind of assaultive where you saw Buffalo Bob Smith saying like, hey, kids, we're coming at you and, and kind of uh, abrasive and assaultive, even though I know the boomers love that stuff. So this happens to Generation X, that's our generation in late 60s and early 70s, when there's this onslaught of TV that's kind of like, um, I would say, more emotionally attuned and sensitive, reaching kids on their own uh, emotional level, basically. And we're talking about Sesame Street, um, to some degree, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the electric company, Free to Be You and Me, which is Marlo Thomas's feminist politics primer for little kids, and there's other shows in that in Schoolhouse Rock you can lump together. What they have in common is kind of a progressive bent to them that they're trying to sort of advance kids to this new age of acceptance and tolerance. And there's also kind of great aesthetic uh, freewheeling quality to all these programs. They are all vaguely psychedelic. They're all kind of in, informed by rock music and, and kind of that Peter Max saturated multicolor aesthetic. David, I wanted to ask you what prompted you or what inspired you to write a book about uh, the early, the dawn of educational, well, entertaining uh, multicultural children's television? Beyond the personal aspect, Jeremy, it was, um, I wanted to write about an American success story. Um, I conceived this book, the idea for it, in 2015. Now, now, from where we sit today, 2015 sounds like paradise. You know, there, there was no pandemic, uh, and 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 we hadn't yet seen the man go down the escalator and announce his candidacy. That said, even then, I sensed you know the acute polarization that we're living through now. The way people are so dug in, 
I just wanted to say, like, what, what I wanted to examine a little slice of American history that, in my opinion, worked out for the best, in which people of noble intent set out to do something good, changed the course of children's television in America, um, and helped the least fortunate. And by lifting up the least fortunate, it would lift up all children. I wanted to sort of back formulate how that happened, tell the reader that story, and not just to entertain the reader with that story or tap into the nostalgia of people who are now in their 40s and 50s for that era, but also maybe inspire readers to say, hey, it's been done before, it can be done again. That we can, through, through TV, through the medium of TV, achieve um, something pretty special and great for American children. And there's a lot to unpack there, and I kind of want to get into what you're talking about, the social aspect of using a fairly new medium to educate children in a second. But I did want to back up, and you know, you mentioned obviously there was children's television and children's programming before this, uh, and specifically there were a lot of cartoons uh, that were enjoyed, you know, in movie theaters from the 30s right through the really the late 80s uh, on Saturday morning television that were also aimed at kids. Can you talk a little bit about where the shift came? Uh, Because I think in your book, you make it very clear that the people who were trying to use children's television specifically to educate children initially were looking at educating urban children, particularly poor children and children of color. Um, What was it about that group and what was it about the things that had come before that that these people didn't think met that need? Well, if you if you look at the late sixties, you know, which is when Sesame Street explicitly is conceived, and it's a woman named Joan Gans Cooney um, and a man named Lloyd Morissette. They're the two co-founders of Sesame Street. Joan Gans Cooney's issue was poverty. She wasn't even interested initially in children's programming. She was someone who did documentaries for New York City's local public TV station addressing poverty. Lloyd Morissette was at the Carnegie Corporation, the philanthropic organization, and he was interested in early childhood development, which was at that point a relatively new thing, the study of early childhood. And it was one of those things where they came together, um, they were introduced by by her cousin, And they came together and they combined their ideas. You know, what if we did something with television addressing early childhood and also poverty? And it was that progressive era. It was Lyndon Johnson's Great Society when there was kind of a nationwide buy-in in both the political class and just the citizenry of, hey, let's invest, let's let's have some big public programs. Let's have the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Let's have the Civil Rights Act. Let's have the Head Start program, which gives poor kids a leg up um, so that they, when they enter kindergarten, they're, they're on the same footing as their more affluent peers in the suburbs. So all of this conspired to, to make, make people say, what if we use the medium of TV? Because, because I guess Joan Gans Cooney knew a lot about television. Lloyd Morissette did not. But Lloyd Morissette was doing these kind of pilot programs to help poor inner city kids. But the scale of this was only like hundreds of kids. Whereas TV had the potential to reach millions of kids. And that was sort of the germ of Sesame Street. They were uh, writers on Captain Kangaroo, you mentioned. And um, I did want to say, too, I, uh, my formative years, I, I, my mother was single and we were very poor. And I, my first exposure to the Spanish language was Sesame Street. But I, getting to, uh, Jamie often tends to hit the serious notes, but uh, getting to the the less serious. I, I had no idea that Rolf was 
Jimmy Dean's partner, nor did I know Jimmy Dean had a TV show, a variety show. Um, I only knew him for his sausage, and um, I, I also know he was a somewhat prolific country singer. I know I've downloaded some of his um, albums that were kind of for fun, but they actually turned out to be pretty decent. Um, so what I want, the reason I'm bringing this up, though, is Henson, who became one of the main creative forces behind Sesame Street, was very opposed to advertising for children and i believe there was a a mexican soda commercial and maybe some potato chips munchos munchos mm-hmm. um can we talk about that a little bit because i you know to think about children's television not being aimed at advertising is almost hard to wrap your head around in this day and age because it's just they're just inundated from birth well first of all jeremy i think it's very telling that this is chicago radio and you go straight to the, the sausage angle that, that, <laughs> yes, of course. That by itself, just you know, it's a it's a different style of programming you're, you're doing here um, at Lumpen Radio, clearly. Um, but Jim Henson, I'm glad you mentioned his name because he's such a formidable uh, force in my book and in this children's television revolution that I write about. And Jim Henson, as you said, made his name at first through advertising and entertainment. He was not a, he never thought of puppetry and Muppetry, if you want to call it, as children's entertainment. He didn't go into it for kids at all. But this guy was a millionaire by the time he was 30 because he'd done so well doing these advertisements with the early Muppets, um, including Ralph, who was on the Jimmy Dean show and also and also was in commercials too. And Kermit also did commercials early on. And Jim Henson was someone who was tapped by John Stone, who Joan Gans Cooney and Lloyd Morris had picked to be the original showrunner of Sesame Street. John Stone was a Captain Kangaroo guy who knew the ins and outs of children's TV programming. He was also buddies with Jim Henson. And Jim Henson wasn't necessarily keen to say, oh, I'm going to go on a kid's show. But then the, the, the sort of stroke of good fortune, there were a lot of strokes of good fortune that, that made the stars align so Sesame Street happened. And one was that Jim Henson was the father of young children when they were trying to pull Sesame Street together. And Henson had three kids who sort of were developmentally fine. His fourth kid, uh, John Paul Henson, was was, uh, little right at the time when they were trying to start this show. And he was having learning disabilities, um, what would later be diagnosed as dyslexia and and related uh, learning disabilities. So he got really interested in how do kids learn. And once this happened, he kind of doubled down and said, you know what, I am going to go bring my Muppets to Sesame Street and I am going to explore how we can use them to further education. And I'm going to forswear my lucrative advertising work. So one of the last commercials he does that you mentioned is for a Frito-Lay crunchy snack called Munchos. And you see this monster in the commercial going, me like Munchos, except he is not blue. He's kind of this lavender color and he doesn't like uh, sweet things. He likes savory things. And so he was basically re-dyed and repurposed to become that fellow we all know and love, Cookie Monster. You know, there's a wonderful passage in your book, actually, where a woman goes to Henson and Oz's studio and uh, takes a look at all the cabinets uh, that they have. And she discovers that instead of being labeled things like noses, plush parts, they're floozles and wopsies and this completely strange language that Henson has to build his Muppets. Uh, it's, it's a magical thing in the book. And it kind of, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book, David, was you do communicate this idea that there was something 
magical about how all this came together. Henson, when they got him on Sesame Street and you're telling, was a key reason that the program succeeded and survived. He gave them credibility precisely because, as you mentioned earlier, he had been a millionaire from, from advertising and he had this kind of gravitas. Uh, there's another great passage in your book, and we'll hear some passages from your book in a minute, but when he walks into the studio and they, they, it's like the Moses coming and parting the Red Sea, you know, these people swanning into the TV studio who are just, you know, in awe of, of Henson's uh, gravitas and charm and kind of this quiet goodness that he radiated. I wanted to talk a little bit about that um, luck that this program had because I don't think people realized it, and I certainly didn't until I read your book, about how much research actually went in to getting Sesame Street on the air, unlike a lot of other children's television shows, which were, I think, largely put together by the people who were the hosts and, and maybe the co-hosts, there was an entire battery of tests and, and field work that were done uh, right down to the casting of the people to see whether children would respond to them, how they would pay attention to them, what was the best way they could learn. And you note in your book also Sesame Street made several mistakes that they then corrected, you know, later on. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that is kind of an unexplored area that I think your book, to me, really, really fascinatingly explores. Well, what's interesting is that right away, Joan Gans Cooney called Sesame Street an experiment. And she really called it an experiment for the first 10 years of its life. There was no presumption when they launched this thing that it would be around 51 years later with all of us talking about it. They thought it might just last one season. So it was always called an experiment. And from that inception, from when Lloyd Morissette and Joan Gans Cooney talked about it at a dinner party to when it reached the air in November 69 for the first time, and Jamie, you and I were sitting there watching, um, that was three and a half years of preparation and development. And I don't mean development in that sort of L.A. development hell thing where it was like some suits were putting up delays. It was because they were rigorously researching from several angles. They, were, they had academic consultants who were saying, like, here are the the uh, marks we have to hit in terms of making the show truly educational. They were testing the entertainment value of the show. They were trying to get that right alchemical mix of programming. So we had the right mix of like live action, Muppet action, animation. And then it was incorporating Joe Raposo, who was um, the, the composer and musical director of the show, who wrote the, the, the theme song, Sunny Days, Kicking the Clouds Away, and all these songs we know, like I've Got Two Eyes, One, Two, they're both the same size, one, two. So all of these factors had to come together and align in a way that, and I think that the reason Sesame Street is so enduring is because of that rigor and the amount of time that went into it. It's why this show is something that's, that's sort of a, the whole vocabulary of it, Cookie Monster, Ernie and Bert, uh, it, it, it's something that's still in our vocabulary and so enduring because it was so rigorously prepared. And they had to sell this to the government as well because PBS was publicly funded and there was a little backlash at first, correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it's unprecedented really, Jeremy. Like bef nothing before or since, like the U.S. government, the federal government was in the TV production business. Joan Gans Cooney and Lloyd Mar Morissette hustled the U.S. government to put up half of the show's initial $8 million a year budget because they needed that money to pull this off. It really was a true public-private uh, cooperative thing. And, and by the time the show reached the air, 
Nixon was the president, but even Nixon, for all the villainy with which he's associated, you know, he was really on board with this too. And his secretary of education, James Allen, uh, a few days before Sesame Street went on the air for the first time in 69, James Allen goes on NBC to promote this show. And it, it's sort of like the equivalent of if, if the current secretary of education went on Jimmy Fallon and said, yo, 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 check it out. Uh, the U.S. government's new show is dropping Tuesday. You got to watch it. It was like it was like something that wouldn't happen now, um, because because you actually had the federal government um, involved in the promotion and dissemination of this show. It really was, you know, we people fear big government sometimes, but I think this is big government at its best. What it can be if you actually don't think it's a terrible thing to get the government involved in a project. You know, we're speaking right now with David Camp. He's the author of the book Sunny Days, a new history of the early days of children's television. It's out from Simon & Schuster. Right now, we want to take a moment and actually let you listen to some of what David wrote. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. We also want to thank Makaya McRaven for providing the music and, of course, the International Anthem Company. We're going to be right back after this short interlude. Again, this is I-94. Jim dove headlong into the new public TV show. In doing so, he forsook the lucrative advertising career that had enriched him and raised his national profile. While he never became an expressly political person, as Stone increasingly would, Henson did become, in his quiet way, a children's advocate, vigilant in controlling how his Muppets were used. With a few exceptions, a soda ad made solely for the Mexican market, and two early 1980s campaigns for Polaroid and American Express that were targeted at adults and used non-sesame Muppets, Henson never did TV commercials again. In early 1969, he filmed the last of a series of spots for Munchos, a brand of Frito-Lay potato crisps, and then called it a day. At that point, quite a few of the Muppets from Henson's myriad advertising jobs were in the process of being repurposed for the benefit of young viewers. One of them, voiced and operated by Oz, was a furry monster, pinkish purple rather than blue, who in the recent past had demonstrated such a passion for Munchos that he ate them by the bagful while exultantly shouting, Munchos! It would not be long before the Munchos monster switched his allegiance from savory treats to sweet ones. Getting Henson on board early in Sesame Street's developmental process was a coup. The Muppets conferred upon the nascent show a visual and spiritual identity that would set it apart from other children's programming. Furrier, featherier, weirder, cleverer. I think, somehow, Jim Henson knew in his soul that the educators and psychologists talked about in detail, but they talked about it intellectually, said Norton Wright, who oversaw the production of Sesame Street's international editions in the early 70s. Jim knew that deep within kids who are three to five years old, what they want to do is destroy something. So if you're going to have Kermit explain the geometric form of a rectangle, as he did in the 17th episode of Sesame Street's first season, at the end, Cookie Monster is going to show up, smash it, and say, It's a wreck and a tangle. Indeed, much of what we think of as Sesame Street sensibility was present in the Muppets even before their energies were channeled towards young viewers. Monsters were not scary beasts, but agents of comedy and catharsis. Kermit the Frog already exuded Sunny Day's cheer and wonder. Stone recalled visiting Henson's Manhattan workshop in the pre-Sesame days and regarding it with the awe of a child. One wall, he said, was filled with floor-to-ceiling drawers, each labeled with a sign describing its contents by Don Solin, the Muppets' chief designer and builder. And on those signs were words like scruffies, zorks, fuzzies and waffles, and poops. The sheer otherness of Henson World, fantastical but self-assured, powered by its own internal logic, sparked Stone's imagination. 
He took to visiting the puppet shop regularly in the early days of Sesame Street, browsing through Solon's drawers in search of inspiration for comedy sketches. Henson was innately an agent of imaginative thought and, to boot, a born teacher and mentor, ideal qualities for a children's television program. I joined Jim when I was 19, and I never realized that what we had was a unique thing, said Frank Oz. I thought this was how everybody works, that people work together really hard and collaborate happily with no politics or backstabbing. The difference is that we had a man who led us that way, by being pure, being honest, being caring. So telepathically tight was Henson's crew that it operated as a sort of gestalt. For starters, nearly all of Sesame's founding puppet team, chief among them Henson, Oz, Solon, Jerry Nelson, and Carol Spinney, shared a look, sporting prodigious facial hair and counterculturist threads. Loretta Long, in her first day on set as Susan, was struck by the sight of this group advancing assuredly through the studio as a flying wedge, like geese, with Henson at the fulgroom. It was the breeze coming through, Long said. From the direction of Hooper's store comes this man with shoulder-length brown hair and a benevolent look on his face, like Jesus. The others are on either sides of him, tunics and ponchos flapping. They all just moved like one big force field. And that was a short excerpt from David Camp's Sunny Days. It's out now from Simon & Schuster. David, one of the things that Sesame Street tried to do early on was focus on poor urban children. And and reading the book, um, you know, I grew up in a mix of of country and and city places. Uh, I've always kind of considered myself more of a city kid. One of the things about Sesame Street that was magnetic to me was the fact that it looked like a city. Uh, the stage set looked kind of like a ratty brownstone. There was a monster in the garbage can. Uh, Big Bird <laughs> tottered down brownstone staircases. It looked very much like, you know, kind of where I grew up. Um, but interestingly, and I, I thought about this even when I was younger, you know, most of the people that watched PBS, I thought, were kind of white upper class people. So did Sesame Street really succeed in its goal to reach that urban core? And how did it do it? I think it very much succeeded in that goal. And um, part of it was, I mean, the, the actual logistics of it were, they, they had all, when we talked about the rigorous preparation, they had a whole department called Department of Utilization, which really meant community outreach. They basically went to the urban leagues, you know, the African-American urban leagues that existed in, in various cities throughout the country and enlisted people in them to kind of do community outreach just to create awareness of the show because you have to remember that not everyone had a color tv not everyone had access to a tv in their house back then it wasn't it wasn't ubiquitous the way the way streaming is now and so and 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 as you said the default pbs watching family back then was kind of a a middle class or upper upper middle class family so how do you even get you know the 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 intended demographic of of poor black families to watch the show and a lot of it was just like 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 canvassing on the ground, like in New York City, they actually had Con Edison, the utility, devote, uh, uh, sorry, donate uh, literal promotional vehicles, repurposed Con Ed trucks that had like early video cassette machines in them, where they could actually drive around and play excerpts of the show. Um, to get people excited. And then they would have community viewing centers. So if you didn't have a TV in your apartment, you could meet in a church basement or in a rec room of, 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 a, of a housing complex. And, and they even did things like they passed out leaflets 
at uh, a football game at Yankee Stadium between Morgan State and Grambling State, two historically black colleges, because they knew that there was the audience where everyone there would be black, and therefore what a great place to raise awareness of the show. So they really were ingenious about getting the word out about the show, and it really was successful in cultivating that audience. See, that's amazing, because here in Illinois, if ComEd was doing something, they'd be bribing people in Springfield. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jamie mentioned earlier that you know, the, the Sesame Street reminded him you know, of the city and, and where he grew up. And for me, it was the opposite. I grew up in a, a, a suburb of Detroit, and at the time, it was predominantly white. But it was for me, it was uh, exhilarating. And I, I, I specifically remember watching Sesame Street, um, and you were talking about some of the songs. I still remember, you know, the cook, C is for cookie, and I've got two oh, that's eyes. that's a great one. Yeah. Rubber Ducky. Rubber Ducky. You I still mean, sing Rubber Ducky. Yeah, I can sing those, you know, yeah. verbatim from when I was four years old, and there's something to be said about that. But for for the appeal for me was actually seeing a bunch of different kinds of people hanging out in a little, you know, a little rougher. But what I wanted to ask you about, David, was, you know, there was some backlash to Sesame Street from some of the, the – communities of color. Uh, I remember it was mentioned in the book that people were not super thrilled that one of the residents of the neighborhood lived in a garbage can and uh, things like that. Can you talk about this? And uh, I did also want to mention, too, that, you know, the TV divide kind of reminds me now of, you know, what we have with the digital divide where some of the less affluent communities are unable to access the Internet. I'm, I'm just mentioning that. But can we talk a little bit about the backlash that Sesame Street uh, – received and we are predominantly talking about Sesame Street right now and that was a focus of the book but we'll move on to some of the other uh the shows uh I actually was not a fan of Mr. Rogers when I was a kid oh really no I like the urban stuff oh I like I like Fred Rogers (laughs) we'll talk to him after the break but yeah I think this and you know you mentioned there's a good chapter on on Roosevelt the the Muppet that uh Roosevelt Franklin yes Mm mm-hmm I remember that well, song too, Roosevelt Franklin's Elementary School. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a good song. Well, as as far as backlash, Jeremy, it was kind of all over the map. It wasn't just from it wasn't just I mean there there were right-wing people in Mississippi who hated the fact that the show was integrated. In fact, oh. Mississippi Public Television didn't want to air the show at first. Um, but then it, the, the national press basically shamed them. Like it, it, it looked so bad for Mississippi that they had chosen not to air the show on their public stations that they were essentially shamed in, in, in a good way, in my opinion, for do, uh, into showing Sesame Street. But on the other end of things, there was this critique that, oh, they're trying to reach a black audience, but it's too sanitized. It's not real enough. Like Sesame Street is is too smiley and it doesn't depict, you know, how how harrowing circumstances really are in the inner cities. And Lloyd Morissette wrote a memoir five years after Sesame Street came out in which he said, we actually considered that. We actually considered like, what if we made Sesame Street seedier than it was depicted as being? Um, and, and some people did react. They thought that Oscar the Grouch was meant to be a proxy for the black tenement dweller, that someone so poorly has to live in a garbage can, which was not remotely their intent. But the very fact that that um, that was an impression was something that that they had to take into account. It's something you brought up earlier, Jamie, about how they did make mistakes and how and like for example, they didn't represent Latin American viewers at all, really, in the first two seasons. And Latin American viewers, uh, you know. Uh, Community leaders actually met with Joan Ganscooney and said, hey, 
you're you're selling us short. You're screwing up. And rather than say, "How dare you? I'm the saint who's uh, preparing this um, exemplary piece of children's programming," she said, "You know what? You're right." And that's why that's why Luis, uh, played by Emilio Delgado, and Maria, played by Sonia Manzano, were added to the show in 1971, and they both stayed on for 40-something years. But yeah, so I mean, there was a lot of fraught, charged political stuff surrounding Sesame Street, and I think part of the genius and wonder of Joan Gans Cooney is that she listened. She didn't push back and say, I'm right and you're wrong. She was open to critique, which very few powerful white people in positions of leadership are. And that's a good place to actually take a break here real quick and remind folks of the people that make the station possible. As always, you are listening to I-94 here on WLPN. We're in conversation with the author David Camp. He has a new book out called Sunny Days. It's about the early days of children's television in America from Simon & Schuster. We're going to return with another selection from his book, and then we'll be speaking with him right after the break. Keep it tuned to 105.5 FM, Chicago. And now back to I-94 on Lumpin Radio. To young audiences, a Roosevelt Franklin segment was the mark of an especially good Sesame Street episode, akin to a Tonight Show spot where Don Rickles, or later Robin Williams, ambushed Johnny Carson with firecracker shtick. More alive, electric, fun. But unbeknownst to the kids at home who were relishing Roosevelt's every appearance, he was a figure of controversy from the get-go, caught up in the fraught racial politics of his day. The black members of CTW's senior staff, among them Evelyn Davis, the utilization coordinator, Luttrell Horn, a producer, and Jane O'Connor, a schoolteacher turned CTW curricular advisor who also edited the monthly Sesame Street magazine, registered misgivings about Roosevelt even before his maiden segment, Roosevelt Counts, had been broadcast. Somehow, Robinson had circumvented the workshop's usual painstaking vetting process and gotten Roosevelt's first segments into the production pipeline without eliciting feedback from his black peers. O'Connor, who screened Roosevelt Franklin Counts only days before it went on the air, made her displeasure known to Dave Connell, expressing concern that Roosevelt was simplistically black and potentially a perpetrator of degenerative stereotypes of black people among white viewers. I like the idea of black Muppets, O'Connor wrote to Connell but she did not approve of this one-dimensional use of black puppets. Cooney, looking to quell O'Connor's discontent, wrote to her explaining that Roosevelt was a risk worth taking, at least in the short term. We ought to try this kind of thing in an experimental way, she told O'Connor, since we have been criticized by some blacks as being more Westchester than Watts. Robinson was among the critics to whom Cooney was referring, speaking to author Phyllis Feinstein, whose book All About Sesame Street, published in 1971, was one of the first about the program, Robinson made the case for using vernacular black English, which, indeed, he did not only as Roosevelt, but also as Gordon, using such phrases as, hey man, right on, and be cool. Why insist on standard English, six o'clock news English? It's drab and lifeless, he told Feinstein. I prefer a southern way, where everything's done in analogy. As slow as a mule, or walking up a hill is like molasses in January. Kids flip. The safe but dull norm isn't natural. Standard is imposed, a definite kind of propaganda for certain values. Black English involves all sorts of things, tone, inflection, pacing. I think we should communicate with children whatever way they understand. Somewhere around four or five, Robinson continued, a black kid is going to learn he's black. He's going to learn that's a positive or negative. What I want to project is a positive image. But this reasoning did little to assuage the uneasiness of O'Connor and her like-minded black colleagues. 
In October of 1970, when the workshop held a training conference in New York for its far-flung team of regional utilization coordinators, Roosevelt was a hot topic. Both Sandra Lindsay, the coordinator for Los Angeles, and Jean Hazard, from Oakland, wondered if Roosevelt had a father. O'Connor, also at the meeting, tersely responded, I don't know. Matt Robinson created him. It should be noted that in Roosevelt Franklin Counts, after Roosevelt's mother saying, What you gonna do when you get to three? He responds, I'm gonna look my daddy right in his knee. But that is the first and last we hear of Mr. Franklin Sr. Pressed further by the coordinators about Roosevelt, O'Connor said, There are mixed feelings on the staff, and admitted, Sometimes I get uptight when I think about how long we've been trying to get away from that language. Only Aston Young, at the time the utilization coordinator for the New York Newark metro area, piped up in Roosevelt's defense, saying, Many people aren't aware of a Roosevelt Franklin type and should be made aware. We can show one side of life or we can show the whole spectrum. To which O'Connor responded, My objective, now that we are introducing black puppets, is that we should introduce at the same time other types of black puppets. Robinson was upset by the internal resistance to his creation, believing his critics to have their priorities backward when it comes to modeling positive behavior for black children. Robinson was himself an educated black man, a writer with a degree in English from Penn State University whose parents had been a newspaper man and a teacher. He saw no conflict in presenting to the world a character who was simultaneously erudite, sufficiently so that he somehow ran a classroom with no adult supervision, and palpably black in his mannerisms. It was a sign of the times that there were a lot of black people who were trying to put race under the mat, said Dolores Robinson, who, though she split with Matt in the early 1970s, remains a defender of Roosevelt. They were so damn bougie that they were embarrassed by Roosevelt, she said. They were busy thinking that the whiter you acted, the better off you would be. Those people were embarrassed by their own culture. It's the same people who were embarrassed by rap when it first started. And that was a selection from the book Sunny Days, written by the author David Camp, who is our guest here on I-94, right here on Lumpin' Radio. Of course, I'm Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And before the break, we had a long conversation with David about the TV show Sesame Street. Uh, David's book actually is about a number of other shows, however, as well. And I think during this half of the program, we'd like to talk about them as well. I'll, you know, just jump on this grenade right now. One of the shows you do mention is Fat Albert. Uh, and I have to be honest, when I was a kid, I loved Fat Albert. So did I. I. I thought it was wonderful. And of course, Bill Cosby today is in jail, and uh, he's been revealed as a sexual predator, something you don't shy away from in your book, David. Uh, when this all happened, uh, I do another show with a gentleman called Mario Smith, who's a black gentleman from Hyde Park, and like... Like me, he, he idolized Bill Cosby as a kid. You know, Fat Albert was the thing we, we ran home to put on the TV. Can I we even had his records. I had his yeah, records, too. Chicken yeah. Heart, I'll never oh, forget Oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, Weird Harold, Mushmouth. I mean, you know, the, these were kids that, um, you know, I, I considered childhood friends. Uh, so, David, you know, this is a tough thing, you know, when we're talking about children's programming. And, and, and Cosby's certainly not the first children's entertainer. Uh, to be caught up in a horrible scandal. You know, in Britain, people know Jimmy Savile, who turned out to be a serial predator, you know, apparently molesting hundreds of children during a career there. Can you talk a little bit about, though, Fat Albert, what it meant, and then a little bit about how we now have to kind of look at it today in light of what we know about its creator? Well, I think I think it's actually not that hard to separate what we know about its creator and, and the actual show. Because I think if we go back to 1972, 1973, 1974, 
We didn't know that Bill Cosby was a sexual predator or a bad guy. In fact, he was also on The Electric Company, which is um, PBS's older sibling show to, to uh, Sesame Street. That was the, the one you graduated to when you learned how to read. So Bill Cosby was this recognized in that era as a force of good. He was this aspirational figure, whether you were black or white. This was a guy who was an educated man who showed that there was a pathway to, to, um, to achieving, achieving success. And so none of the, the bad stuff factored in because we were ignorant of it. And so if you're a little kid watching Fat Albert in the early 70s, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't carry guilt with you about that to the present day because of what we've learned about him since. Fat Albert was actually a noble undertaking. And I, it was win-win because for white kids like us, we were being exposed to a kind of black world and black culture that we were previously ignorant of. Whereas for black kids, they got to see something of, of themselves on screen. Same with the Roosevelt Franklin Muppet on Sesame Street. For black kids watching at home to see themselves represented on screen was incredibly validating. In fact, Questlove from the band The Roots, he wrote the foreword to my book and he specifically acknowledges this. He said, I grew up in Philadelphia and to see a version of myself on screen, it opened up new windows of the possibilities that life held for me as a young black kid. And prior to Sesame Street, prior to Fat Albert, black kids watching TV at home didn't see those opportunities. So that's important. And this was his dissertation, correct? Yeah, Bill Cosby, I remember when the Cosby show was a big deal in the 1980s, he always had this educational consultant that, uh, credit at the end of the, the show that I thought was really pompous. It was like uh, consultant William H. Cosby uh, E.D. or whatever, whatever however you describe <laughs> the, 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 his, his, his doctor. But his doctoral dissertation was basically producing the Fat Albert show and then basically writing a dissertation, uh, a paper about it, and which, which is available online through uh, his alma mater, Temple University. And you read it and like it's hard. You see the arrogance of Cosby in there. But again, you can see the noble intent that you can separate from the horrible man. Uh, you know that that he wanted to create a show. I mean, you forget if you go back and watch those shows that you can on YouTube or wherever. Those kids are literally hanging out on scrap heaps in yeah. junkyards, yeah. and it's it's a very radical thing to go back and look at in terms of this is not how the cartoon world was presented to little kids before. So that was meaningful to black kids watching at home to say, oh, God, this is the ghetto on TV. I used to watch Fat Albert, you know, and I, I mentioned, you know, where I grew up earlier. And I never really thought of it as a black show. It was just Fat Albert. And I loved it, you know, and it was a it was a good um, experience for me. It, what you just mentioned, the setting was something I was not overtly familiar with. And I, and I, um, we talk about this a lot too on the show is just, you know, separating the art from the artist. There's a lot of terrible people that have put out wonderful works of art and we're able to do that pretty well here. Not everyone is, but we're, we've been pretty good at it. So yeah, of course, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think with, with children's programming, it becomes so much more fraught, you know, I mean, Cosby's shows are not widely available. If you want to see Fat Albert, you have to see him on YouTube, really? which, which, yeah, which oh, I wow. do, which I do regret, you know, because I think, as you mentioned, it was presenting, uh, the atmosphere of Brooklyn or the Bronx, you know, in 1970 or, or Philadelphia or Baltimore. Philly, Philly in Fat yeah. Albert's case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it felt real. 
Another show that I think had a major impact, and you do discuss it in the show, of course, is the show that Fred Rogers put out in Pittsburgh. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood also was a, was a personal favorite of mine. I was very fond of uh, uh, Make Believe, the King of Make Believe, and, and the King, and all the, the weird things. But that was also, as you mentioned in your book, a slyly transgressive show. And you, you mentioned one thing in particular— there is a scene when Fred Rogers uh, has the, I believe, the mailman who was a black man come over and cool his feet together in a little swimming pool with him. Uh, a little small act of radical integration in a time when race relations in America were probably about as bad as, as they are right now, if not worse. Can you talk about Fred's uh, approach to children's programming? Because it was very different, not only from Howdy Doody and what came before, but it was also different from Sesame Street. Yeah, Sesame Street was fast-paced. It was modeled, the pacing was modeled on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, which for anyone listening who's under 50, that was a late 60s comedy sketch show that had this rat-a-tat-tat amphetamine pace, super fast. <laughs> Whereas, and, and it also, Sesame Street had explicit curricular goals like learning the alphabet, learning how to count to 20. Fred Rogers was something more amorphous. First of all, the pace was really slow, but what he was trying to teach kids was to be in touch with their emotions, their emotional intelligence. And so he spoke in this languid, slow way, which by itself was really radical and audacious. And that alone was weird and 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 strange and maybe it's part of why why Jeremy didn't was Jeremy, did you say you didn't like the show as a kid? I was not a fan, but I will say this. I saw his statue in Pittsburgh three, we went out there for a Sox uh, uh, Pirates game. And yeah. I saw his statue and I broke out in goosebumps. So, you know, maybe I'm uh, embellishing that a little bit. So. No, no, I'm with you. Because at the time, I found Sesame Street, frankly, just simply cooler. It was yeah. like a cooler I was show a, than, than I was kind of a, like, Mr. Rogers. mellow kid. Um, but, and, and I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. But the, but the, um, sure. the Sesame Street cast, because they were young hipsters, they made fun of Fred Rogers for being square and backward. But now they all regret it. Now, like you getting the goosebumps, they've all come to see the massive good he did but uh, and talking about how that that uh foot bathing scene where um to even cast a black man as the neighborhood policeman a singer named francois clemens who lived in pittsburgh um so officer clemens one day it's a hot day it's 1968 and officer clemens is Feet are hot, and then Fred Rogers is soaking his feet in one of those kiddie pools with a garden hose running on. And this is a time when, you know, pools were segregated, and you had to, and, and, and black people were forbidden from swimming in the same pools as white people. So Fred Rogers made a point of having Officer Clemens take off his shoes and borrow his towel, and just that image that they would cut to the two brown feet next to the two white feet in the kiddie pool. Think about the lessons that imparts to a kid watching who's three, four, five years old at home. It also has they a religious overtone, They carry that with them the rest too, of their right? lives. It, I'm sorry? It, it has a religious overtone, too. And, of course, he was a Presbyterian minister. I mean, the washing of the feet is something that, uh, you know, the Pope does, uh, you know, uh, to the lepers and the, the homeless once a year. I, I read that also as explicitly sending a Christian message. Yeah, I mean, but it was a subtle ministry, and there was a lot of subtlety. There's also subtle psychology in that show. Like the whole reason that when Fred Rogers walks left to right, when he walks into his house singing It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, is because how does a kid reading English learn to read? You read left to right. So that was actually to build 
those eye tracking motions and the same thing with the trolley going to the neighborhood of make-believe. What do little kids have problems with? Transitions, like in nursery school. Hey kids, it's time to go from the classroom to the, to the activity room and, and the kids cry, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave and transitions are a problem. So that, that sort of chiming piano and Celeste music with the trolley moving was a way to teach kids that transitions can be fun things. So there's a lot of like uh, subliminal stuff going on in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Yes, and what I was uh, mentioning before is I, I, I can really appreciate the impact that Mr. Rogers had. And uh, David, I'm a former, I'm a librarian, but I'm a former children's librarian. And it, what amazes me and what this was blowing my mind while I was reading your book is how much time and energy people put in to when you were saying, Mr. Rogers, walk from left to right because that's you read the cognitive function of children and how to work with that and improve it as opposed to how much time can we keep these kids on their iPad or watch, you know, how many commercials they can be exposed to. And, you know, and basically, from what I understand, Reagan killed this, correct? Like he, everything else that was ruined in this country, it started with Reagan. (laughs) I, I guess you're not a fair and balanced network like Fox. No, no we're not. Our opinions yeah, are so our own. <laughs> it, was, um, it was an era, I mean, the, 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 the sunny days era, which I, is what I refer to as like sort of the late 60s through, through the mid 70s, the, the era of programming I described in my book. It was basically underpinned by a progressive agenda of the public good. Let's invest public resources, including governmental resources, in big programs for children, TV programs and federal for educational programs too. Reagan comes along and his first uh, commissioner or chairman of the FCC is a a guy named Mark Fowler. Mark Fowler said he didn't just want to deregulate television, he wanted to unregulate television, which means like wipe all regulations aside. And the most famous quote he said, he said, a television is basically nothing more than a toaster with pictures. What he meant by that is that it's just another appliance, household appliance, with no moral imperative attached to it. Whereas, you know, the FCC commissioners under Kennedy and Johnson and even Nixon and, and, and of course, Jimmy Carter, they all felt that, hey, if, if the government is allowing you to broadcast television, there should be some programming in the public interest and especially for children. Mark Fowler and the Reagan administration basically said, nah. Don't worry about it. And this suddenly loosened things up for TV stations to say, hey, we don't have to have this nobly intended educational children for programming, so the hell with it. Let's get rid of it. And that really made a big difference in, in the amount of good stuff that was on TV for kids in the 80s. And of course, you mentioned, you know, a lot of TV stations, independent TV stations, in fact, did have their own little small children's programs. You mentioned a a small handful of them that were in major cities, some of them that lasted for for many, many years. And one of the things I just want to point out to our listeners is one of the things that that Reagan also got away with was getting rid of the Fairness Doctrine, which uh, required the right of reply so that a channel such as Fox News, as you mentioned, uh, David, can have opinion programming, uh, but put those opinions out and have them unchallenged. Uh, In the old days, you needed to give comparable airtime to somebody when you were putting an opinion out on the air. So that deregulation or unregulation had far more serious effects, I think, uh, than people realize. It wasn't just on children's programming. It was on all television, unfortunately. I wanted to ask just real quick, David, did you ever uh, come across any footage or 
ratings about hot fudge. That was our uh, uh, Sesame Street ripoff in Detroit. I heard about it. You know, I've never seen it, but yeah, every city had a version of that, though, Jeremy. Like we, like in New York, I grew up in New Jersey in the orbit of New York, and we had the Magic Garden. Um, and there's a show called New Zoo Review, which was produced in California, but was syndicated. So yeah, oh, I remember New Hot Zoo. Fudge, yeah, mm-hmm. we, yeah. We, we all had one of those, a show that was local to us, but was really meaningful to us. Yeah. You know, we're running out of time, David, and there's a couple of questions I do want to ask you before we leave. But real quickly, did you do any research about international programming? And I asked because I spent part of my childhood in Britain, and we also had a very vibrant children's television programming, largely because we had state television. You know, we only had three channels there when I was growing up, and the BBC, of course, is a state broadcaster. So they would fill daytime hours with very odd programs like the Wombles or uh, Into the Labyrinth is another one I remember. Doctor Who, of course, is considered a, a children's program over there. And they were very different in their aims and very different in the way they did things. But I, I just, during this book, did you talk to anybody about that? Or did you look at what other countries were doing? And did that impact what we did here in America? Not so much. I mean, this is actually an area where, in the best sense, America was the thought leader. It was that a lot of that was um, imitative of stuff that began in America. And the only reason or the only way that I really get into international TV programming in the book is about how Sesame Street was such a huge success that very quickly, like by 1970, 71, one or two years into its existence, they were working with other countries to have um, a Mexican version of Sesame Street, an Israeli version of Sesame Street, a South African version. So America really set the tone for a lot of this programming, even if the stuff in Britain was, was peculiar, peculiarly British, a lot of it was influenced by what we were doing here first. Indeed. You know, we're again, we're running out of time. So one thing I did want to ask you before we leave, you know, Sesame Street does survive to the present day, but Sesame Street is not really on PBS anymore. It's on HBO. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and where children's television is today, because it seems for all the lofty goals that the people had in the 1960s and 1970s and the good work that uh, Children's Television Workshop and Jim Henson and Fred Rogers did, today, in a sense, we may be in the same place we were before these programs came along. Uh, Sesame Street is now behind a walled garden. You know, if you don't have the money to subscribe to HBO streaming service, you can't see it. Uh, and the, you know, the idea that it was going to be for poor urban children um, doesn't really seem to go along with that anymore. Can you talk about where we are right now in programming for children? Yeah. I mean, Sesame Street's not entirely behind a paywall. It's um, for the, the new episodes are on HBO max streaming for nine months before they are then released to PBS stations. Now, even so, the optics of that are bad for precisely the reasons you articulated, that this is a show that was initially developed for at-risk poor kids, and now it's in part of a luxury streaming service, which is, which is not ideal. But the fact is, that's the only way that Sesame Street can survive and get the funding it needs to keep being Sesame Street. So the trade-off, I think, is worth it, even though I don't love it. In terms of where we are now and have we come full circle, you're kind of right. It's, it's kind of a, a moment where we need rebirth, especially because we know that this pandemic has revealed how broken parts of our society are, our educational system, our healthcare system, our, our, our system for taking care of the least fortunate among us. But at the same time, I think it's a wonderful moment of renewed activism and renewed optimism. Just look at what happened in the state of Georgia over the last few weeks. So I am weirdly optimistic because I have children who are Generation Z and have a zeal 
an active zeal that I've not seen since this era that I wrote about, that I think we may be on the cusp of a new version of what happened in my book. And that's kind of the intent, too. As I said earlier in the show, I would love this book to be not just a wallow in nostalgia for people, but a call to action for younger people. We've been speaking today with the author, David Camp. He's got a new book out called Sunny Days. It is the story of the birth of children's television in America. It's out now from Simon & Schuster. As always on this program, we're going to leave him with the last word, with a final installment from his book. David, thanks so much for taking time out today to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, David. It was a joy to be here. Thank you. Hey, next week we're going to be joined by Jeff Cohen. He's going to tell us about a murder in Canaryville. But right now, we're going to go to Sunny Days. Think of that Sesame Street theme in your head. You've been listening to I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. Sesame Street remains a laudable program. What it isn't frequently is particularly watchable, at least to longtime devotees like me. Now cut down to a half-hour format, the show is essentially an expanded, extravagantly art-directed Elmo's World. The DNA of the original program remains evident, especially in the design and operation of the Muppets, which are still lovingly created in New York, specifically in Long Island City, Queens, by employees of the Jim Henson Company. But the hipness, depth, and variety that made Sesame Street transcend its intended audience of small children is no longer there. Ernie, Bert, and Grover, among the program's most evolved Muppet characters, are still present, but only as bit players. To some degree, Sesame Street has become less a children's show than, to use Stone's term, a kiddie show. Tellingly, the DVD anthologies of Sesame Street's first five seasons, from the hairy years before CTW had put up its sensitivity guardrails, are marketed towards adults rather than to children, as a pure nostalgia watch. A disclaimer at the beginning of the anthology states, These early Sesame Street episodes are intended for grown-ups and may not suit the needs of today's preschool child. Anecdotal evidence involving latter-day preschoolers' exposure to these DVDs indicates that this disclaimer is bosh. But then, consider HBO's incentive to invest in Sesame Street, that the program is still, after all these years, the gold standard of what children's television is capable of. Even if the show has lost some of its relevance, it has not lost its luster, nor has the workshop lost its bravery or sense of mission on the humanity front. In 2002, the South African and Nigerian versions of Sesame Street introduced a female Muppet named Kami, who is HIV positive as a result of a tainted blood transfusion. In 2011, the U.S. show introduced a Muppet named Lily who struggles with hunger because her family lacks the resources to feed her consistently. Lily's narrative was expanded in 2018 to reveal that she was now also homeless, with her family making do by staying with friends. In 2013, a home video entitled Little Children Big Challenges Incarceration, a blue-haired little Muppet named Alex hung his head as he told his peers sheepishly that his father is in prison. In 2017, the version of Sesame Street added a new Muppet character to its cast of regulars, a flame-haired four-year-old girl with green eyes named Julia, who is autistic. And in 2019, a new online video series, The Workshop, introduced a furry green monster in Muppet named Carly, whose mother was away for a while because she had grown-up problems, i.e. drug addiction. Taken together, these developments might read like a parody, a methodical ticking of every box in the Bleeding Heart Liberals checklist. But the new storylines actually harken back to Sesame's origins as a program for the marginalized and the disadvantaged, and to the empathy that motivated Cooney and Morissette to put themselves through their grueling paces in the first place. The workshop's unending quest to identify the difficulties that children go through and to address them through research, cheeriness, humor, and song is unique in the realm of entertainment. No other effort on children's behalf has come close to matching CTW's work.
I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured David Camp, author of Sunny Days, out now from Simon & Schuster. This episode originally aired on January 24, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.